The Mass Psychology of Fascism by Wilhelm Reich was burned by the United States government in 1957. It had been burned by the Soviet Union earlier and by Nazi Germany even earlier than that. And it describes very accurately the system of government we have now, which I call the Tsarg, the Tsarist occupation government. Reich's argument was that fascism is not an aberration that happened in Italy and Germany for a few decades. It's sort of the permanent undercurrent of all patriarchal authoritarian societies. When they're under threat, they turn fascist. Fascism is just a modern name for something that's been happening periodically throughout the history of authoritarian pyramidal civilizations. Welcome to the Hilaritas Podcast, brought to you by Hilaritas Press, publishing the works of Robert Anton Wilson and other adventurous thinkers. I am your host, Mike Gathers. Join us as we explore the world of this iconic writer, Robert Anton Wilson, and the many thinkers who influenced him. In this episode, we continue our adventure with Bob the Libertarian, Wilhelm Reich, and Reichian Therapy. Bob first read about Wilhelm Reich sometime between the FDA injunction on Reich's orgone accumulators in 1954 and Reich's arrest in 1957. Bob felt outraged over the U.S. government imprisonment of a scientist in a supposed free country. And here we see the cracks first start to appear in the worldview of Bob the dogmatic materialist. After looking deeper into Reich, Bob tried Reichian therapy, including the then-taboo bodywork and the downright illegal orgone shooter, which was basically an orgone accumulator with a funnel and a tube leading to the patient. Despite positive results, Bob came away from the experience as skeptical about Reichian therapy as he was about everything else. The U.S. government imprisonment of Reich, destruction of his inventions, and burning of his books left a lasting impact on Bob the Libertarian. In this episode, we chat with Dan Lowe about the life, work, and ideas of Wilhelm Reich. Dan works as a counselor, therapist, and educator in London. He has been studying Reich since discovering him through Robert Anton Wilson over 25 years ago while at university. Dan's clinical work as a therapist is heavily informed by relational therapy and Reich's somatic therapy. Dan Lowe, welcome to the Hilaritas pod. Thank you. Yeah, we're here today to talk about Wilhelm Reich. Reich, I think, is maybe the way to pronounce it, but I'll probably mm-hmm. never, never get that going. So I'm struck by a man who's lived nine lives, who was mm-hmm. way ahead of his time, so much so that he just it was hard for people to wrap their head around what he was doing and where he was going and all the persecution that comes along with that. And uh, almost feeling a little overwhelmed by it all. And mm-hmm. so I was thinking maybe we could just start by giving us a little biographical sketch. And if there was even a way to kind of weave in the evolution of his ideas as we sure. go through all this and just see where it takes us. I'll, I'll give it a shot. There is a lot of information. As you say, he he lived enough for nine lives. You know, it was such a, and it's such a complex life and his ideas interweave for it and one of the things is he never stopped really intellectually running until he died so his ideas were continuously evolving so a lot of people will will have a kind of career end retrospective you know when they they stop and they rest and they and they sum everything mm. up 
And Reich never kind of got that, largely because of going to prison at the end of his life, you know, and uh, he died in prison in 1957. But, but I'll try and give a brief sort of thumbnail sketch if I can. So he was born in Austria in 1897, you know, in what would have been then a province of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. His family were non-practicing Jews. His father was like a local local farmer and businessman. And he was privately educated, or he was educated by a tutor on a farm. And his early education seemed to involve a lot of being outside and looking at the living world, basically. And I think that's significant if you look at his later work. He uses a lot of biological metaphors, like, you know, and you can sort of, you can you get a sense of where, of where he came from. It struck me that he comes from the farm. And there's just yeah. such uh, the curiosity, but also just the, the intent of the farm is to cultivate nature and to harvest nature. And there's just that, that study of nature and how do we do this more efficiently. Even I was thinking like he had this focus on prevention instead of treatment. I mean, mm-hmm. about the farm, you would much rather have healthy crops than be dealing with yeah. how to yeah. salvage unhealthy crops or... Long ago, I was watching a Bob Marley documentary and a producer was talking about how Bob came from the farm and the country and there was a certain ethic that comes with the farm and yeah. put into it to get back versus some of the street kids, um, you know, kind of if you want something, you took it maybe yeah. in, in the, in the yeah. slums. And so Bob had this kind of, you put into it and you get back mm-hmm. and you think about Reich and uh, work love and knowledge there's that work piece that's mm-hmm. centers around his uh yeah. ideas so yeah um, i i also think with the farm what, what why it's one of the things why it's so important is because if you grow up on a farm sex and death aren't going to be big mysteries to you mm-hmm. and birth you're going to see animals breeding you're going to mm-hmm. see um the birth process and you're going to see animals slaughtered so the, the the realities that are quite occluded to a lot of us in the modern world, you're going to be living with those firsthand, and you're going to be going to be in your in the background of of your development if you grow up somewhere like that. Yeah, the and cycle I, of life, and yeah, and then that takes me to his interest in pulsation and rhythms, mm-hmm. and fascinating. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, so. A pivotal event, probably, you know, the, the first real pivotal event, came when he was about 12. He caught the tutor having an affair with the mother um, while the father, I think the father was away when the first instance of this he encountered took place. And what he did, he overheard them having sex. And it's very Freudian in a way, you know, to overhear you, your mother having sex, not just with the father, as who's the, the rival in the, in the Freudian sense, but with someone else altogether. And so he actually went to the father, went to his father, and told him about it. Um, well, he, I think he hinted at it, and his father forced the full story out of him. And I, I believe, by all accounts, his father was quite a sort of bullying, strong, domineering character. And what happened as a consequence of that, the father relentlessly bullied, bullied uh, his mother, Cecilia, and she eventually committed suicide. She drank a household cleaner and killed herself. And then apparently he, Reich's father, Leon, he was so broken by this that he kind of committed a slow-motion suicide himself. Um, He 
began to treat himself really, really badly. One of the biography mentions um, him fishing for long periods in the cold, you know, you know, without a proper warm coat, and uh, he eventually con- contracted TB, and he died not long afterwards. So Reich was kind of doubly orphaned, but in a way at his own hand um, for events that he kind of instigated. And, you know, you don't have to conjecture too hard to see that this might have been a driver for the later interest in sex, the later interest in sexual health, and as well as for just the a possible energy source, you know, mm. having this central trauma right at the core of your family relationship. I think that's something, yeah, I think that's probably something that was quite key. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm um, struck by... Well, one, just 12 years old, to me, that is a, a critical mm-hmm. age. You know, adolescence is kicking in, and uh, there's a certain imprint window there, I believe, for the adolescent growth stage. So just a vulnerable time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you think of life and death and, and uh, mom seeking an outlet for sex with someone else. And, and then basically, mm-hmm. like, you know, life force and watching the mother kill herself and the dad slowly kill herself and himself yeah yeah wow yeah yeah so that whole search for life and death and and, and mm-hmm. understanding it all yeah yeah um right and it may have animated Reich's interest in psychoanalysis which was mm-hmm. the next kind of big stage he he fought in the war he fought in world war one he ended up in vienna he was very poor joined the medical school, and the part he found most interesting was psychoanalysis. And it was through psychoanalytical circles around his studies that he met Freud. And Freud would have been in his 70s then, mm. so it was a senior Freud. But Reich, for a while, was very much a star pupil of Freud's. Mm. And, he, and he, he began practicing as a psychoanalyst very, very early, in his early 20s. And I think one of the reasons why he covered so much theoretical ground in his life was in part, I think, starting so early and having so much experience. You know, I mean, nowadays to enter psychoanalysis as a discipline, you know, you're discouraged from doing it until you're of a certain maturity. It takes years and years and lots of money. You know, Reich started in his early 20s. He started, began to practice and see patients. Also as a way of earning money, as a way of, you know, making money at that time because he was because he was a poor medical student and that's the root of his encounter with Freud. I, I just as a side note, he continued his clinical practice all the way through. Yeah. He, it's uh yeah. something important to me that that can really just help keep you grounded, that you can mm-hmm. be lost in your theories and your ideas and your research and uh kind of lose touch with where the rubber hits the road. But when you're yeah. maintaining that clinical practice over the entire, we are working with clients and patients daily or however yeah. he did it. Yeah, it, it's it's what he did for to generate an income throughout his life. I'm not sure how he viewed it right, right at the end of his life. And I'm not sure what his feelings were about it because, and I think that's, that's one of the things that encouraged him to move from cure to prevention. Mm-hmm. Having seen so many, you know, sort of broken and dysfunctional people, I mean, something he says somewhere in his writing is um, when, when a tree goes crooked, you can never really put it straight. And mm. something he became interested in later, in later in his life was this idea of maybe we can make the trees go straighter. 
initially. I mean, that wasn't until the 50s. Um, yeah. I saw that. Um, I was not aware of this book, Children of the Future, yeah. that he wrote. And uh, I read the first chapter or two, and it really it reminded me of some of the work that came out of Stanislav Grof and his holotropic breathwork and LSD work, where they were bringing up memories of birth experiences and discussing how to have they were seeing where the trauma came in birth and the way we mm-hmm. do things, you know, with lights and very clinical medical environments and taking the baby away and, and from mother and all those different things that were just not very humane. Yeah. And he yeah. was on to that well ahead of them as usual. Yeah, I, I really like the first piece in that collection. It's really short, but the origin of a human though. I think it starts Children of the Future. Just a wonderful short piece of writing that just says, you know, this is where the no starts. This is where we're saying no to life starts. Mm. You come out from a warm environment into a cold one. There these bright lights shining. You know, back in the days then, you would have been uh, slapped on the bum, you know. And I says, yeah, that's where the no starts, this this entering this medical environment in, in, in hostility. And if you're a male, you get yeah. circumcised. and Yeah, but indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. Barbaric practices. Yeah. Uh, um, let's circle back. He found himself in, uh, in Freud's circle there, Freud being the big heavy at the time, and it's interesting. Mm-hmm. So how many second-generation heavy hitters mm-hmm. found their, themselves in Freud's circle and then yeah. kicked out of the, the circle as they went on to do their own thing? And that sounds like Reich had a similar experience. Yeah, yeah. He um, he definitely had his own ideas from um, from very early on. And one of the things he was really interested in, you might re- to reduce it down to its essence, you might say what he was interested in was what is life, what's driving life, uh, oh. what drives neurosis. And um, what was libido, really? That was what he was kind of interested in. He was like, you know, circling around the question of what is life, really. Um, So another thing that's probably worth bringing in, this is why it's difficult to talk about Reich's life because there's so many different ideas, is um, he felt that all of the patients uh, that he saw, all neurotic patients, had some kind of sexual disturbance. Mm. Um, A lot of other analysis at the time said, well... My patient is sexually active and he's still neurotic. And so Reich started to, think, started to say, well, let's take a look closely at what's actually going on around the sexual experience, around the act. And he began to ask people about their fantasies around sex, about their subjective experience around sex, about their embodied experience. And he found a lot of people would say, although they managed to complete the sex act, they would say um, it was... Uh, an act of hostility. They felt disgusted by it. Mm. Um, they felt mixed feelings of aggression. You know, the idea of a penis being used as a kind of weapon to penetrate the woman. And he began to sort of gather evidence of all these fantasies that kind of surrounded the sex act, as well as looking at its what its energetic core might have been, what the energetic core of neurosis and libido might have been. He began to sort of look at the kind of dysfunctional patterning that might surround some aspects of the sex act for some people, for his patients. And he maintained that pretty much all all of the neurotics that he saw, all of the patients that he saw, had some kind of sexual disturbance. So that was another idea that he introduced at the time. Mm. And at a time where it 
just to discuss sex like that would have been so foreign yeah. and taboo coming out of the, the Victorian era. Yeah. Certainly we had Freud paving the way a little bit, but just taking it to another level. And mm-hmm. yeah, you really yeah. start to see where the controversy begins. Exactly. There's a forthrightness and directness about the way he talks about these things, but yeah, he doesn't sort of dance around it. He's quite, he's quite direct in his, his, his writing about that. And the third idea that kind of grew out of the, they had a technical seminar in Vienna in around 1927 or so to improve psychoanalytic practice. And this was where I began to bring in the idea of uh, character analysis that later turned into the basis of his physical therapy. And it was the idea that the patient isn't, a bit like the sexual stuff we're saying, that the, the patient's disturbances aren't necessarily confined to their symptoms. He was also interested in how does this person present himself to me in the room and as is this connected to his symptomology? Does this guy avoid my gaze, for instance? Does this person grasp my hand really loud? Are they aggressive? Are they supercilious? Are they evasive? And his psychoanalytic practice began to look at, if he felt it was appropriate at that given moment, began to look at challenging these specific things, these specific resistances. So we began to see the, the, the patient's character, the way they carried themselves in the world, might possibly be a resistance that was connected to their symptomology. And that led him into somatics, basically, because if you start looking at that sort of thing, you start looking at, so if you notice someone is uh, stubborn, uh, you might find physically that's manifested as a stiff neck. If you if you find someone is um, yeah you know that stubbornness also might be manifested as a tight jaw or a very direct and piercing aggressive grace with a tenseness of a brow. So he began to look at all of those things as well, and uh, gradually over years he began to treat these things directly. So maybe if I work on the jaw or the brow, that resultant character attitude might loosen up a little bit. Um, so it began to move from being a um, solely psychoanalytic verbal therapy to a physical therapy as well. Right. That I, when I think of Reichian therapy, I think of the physical therapy and the physical manipulation that goes along with that mm-hmm. and all of those influences. And, and yeah. one of the things I've learned in preparing for this podcast is how before that he brought what we might today call the nonverbal into the room where you're assessing the nonverbal of the client and the way they present themselves and maybe not just their words, but their tone of voice and the whole package. And uh, just another one of those things where you're like mind blown, you know, this guy really um, came at life and and the world with so many innovative ideas and approaches that's flabbergasting in a way, but certainly nonverbal assessment of a client and psychotherapy is, is uh, a huge, you know, it's almost like uh, you take it for granted today in most schools of therapy. And and that was like a big deal that he pioneered. Yeah. Particularly about time. Yeah. In terms of his energy, like most people who met him, if you read any of the biographic, biographical reminiscences of him, most people will comment on he had this tremendous vitality. He was a hugely energetic person. Myron mm. Sharif wrote probably the best biography of him, and he called it Fury on Earth. Right. And you get that sense. Of, if you look at Reich's 
innovations and the, and the ceaseless kind of movement there. You go, yeah, yeah. Fury on Earth seems an apt, apt description, to be honest. And I imagine if you were in one-on-one with him in real time, you would feel that energy, that power, that that presence. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, and this is all taking place, lest we forget, in, in, in the kind of ferment of pre-war, post-Weimar Germany and Austria, where you've got open conflict in the streets with the communists and and, um, and, and the fascists. You have the uh, fascists come to power in Germany and ascend. And by this time, by the sort of early 30s, Reich had moved to Berlin. So he would have seen firsthand the rise of fascism as well. And he was intimately involved in communism and the influence of communism on his thinking. And he was really, he was the first person that I'm aware of to try and fuse communism and psychotherapy. I mean, fuse sounds a bit crude, but there was a, there's a definitely a communist influence on mm-hmm. his psychotherapeutic um, concepts and things like critiquing the organisation of the family um, and stuff like that. Um, it seemed like that, moving beyond assessing the individual to looking at systems and, and yeah. to the point where you're looking at political systems. And, yeah, exactly. And, 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 and out of that came the first kind of mass psychology book, which is his Mass Psychology of Fascism, which he wrote about looking at how the political conditions of the time were driven by kind of unsatisfied longing, libidinal urges, people, and all this kind of sexual feeling that he felt was subliminated into Nazism, which again is, is like a pretty astonishing uh, observation for the time, really. I mean, we're, we're moving over quite a span of years here. There's a whole phase of um, attempting to do sexual hygiene work in Berlin in the late 20s and 30s and going out to sort of working class districts and talking to people about their sexual problems. And it would be like, Adolescent saying to him, there's no space for us to have sex. People saying to him, where can I get an abortion? What is an abortion anyway? You know, please tell me about birth control. So there's a kind of applied social side to his work, to this this kind of sexual health mission, as well as the therapeutic work. It's kind of, it spills out from the um, therapeutic consulting room into the kind of streets in a way. Right, bringing it to the community in a bigger way. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and, and that's where I think Wilson comes in. I think Robert Anton Wilson was a big fan of the mass psychology. I mean, that's, that's in fact where I first encountered it, I believe. I think it's in Cosmic Trigger 2. Um, right. He went underwent some, some Reiki and therapy, but also just that the idea of, of fascism and the mass psychology of it seems to really permeate Wilson's work. Yeah. Yeah. I'm struck by that the mass psychology of fascism this morning. This is kind of a, a diversion from our biographical sketch, but Germany and and Europe at that time and the, the we'll call it the 1930s can be seen as analog to um the United States today. Mm-hmm. And that we've kind of had our 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 glory years, and we're a little bit on economically. We're on the, we're on the downturn. We're starting to slow our economy, mm-hmm. slowing down, and there's a a big shift in global economic power that's that's coming up, much like what we experienced with World War II. 
And so Reich is seeing all this. He's witnessing all this, the downturn of, of European economy. And we see symptomatic of all this. I think what, what, what I see is there's a great economic d- divide between the haves and the have-nots. Mm-hmm. And that creates a lot of political polarity. Some folks fall on kind of what we might call the, the more fascism side, some on the more socialist communist side. Mm-hmm. There's just a, a big divide in perspectives that's kind of part of this time where things are shifting and changing and we have this Mm -hmm. economic divide. So it's, I don't know if you have any thoughts at the moment, but there's something about going through that book and, and, and seeing, you know, how, how does this apply today? I think for me, it comes out in seeing the, um, the obvious emotional catharsis Mm -hmm. that's attached to things like mass rallies. You know, and this could be true of leftist rallies. It doesn't mean just entirely Trump and Trump rallies, but but the invocation of an enemy and the exhortation to hate the enemy and the excitement that's generated by that mm. as being a kind of catharsis and, and being able to grant people a degree of emotional satisfaction is something that I would see. But I, yeah. but I see it in the kind of Trump rallies, so, yeah. And like I say, I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying that's entirely a phenomenon of. It's just a phenomenon of the right. I don't think it is. But there's all this eliminated emotion, right? You know? And and I wonder if you were really, really happy, um, if you had satisfying relationships, satisfying work situation. The epi- as you mentioned, the epigraph to all of Reich's books is love, work, and knowledge of the wellsprings of our life. They should also govern us. If your urges for love, work, and knowledge were satisfied, would you turn to a Trump? Right. You know, or would you turn to any of these big demagogue-type political figures and and censor them in your, in your life? I don't think you would, you know? Right. So yeah, there's there's passion and emotion in these rallies, but as you brought up, there's also this the enemy mm-hmm. and the tension between that. And it's it's fascinating to me because for the most part, I think the enemy is mostly just another uh disenfranchised human who sees the same, feels the same disenfranchised you do. They just look at it from a completely different yeah. perspective. And now we have these two competing sides that are really ultimately want the same thing, mm. but somehow we, we create enemies out of each other. And, and Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's almost like an, an emotional need for an enemy because I need, I have this, one of the things that what I was trying to bring out in therapy was the hatred that a lot of us have inside of us. It's, it's not very pretty, but a lot of us, because we're unsatisfied and I include me in this, at times we hate. And it's an in- interesting model I'll offer up but but emerges from Reich's work but I think it kind of maybe illuminates what we were just talking about and it's the personality having three layers and the first is the social front the kind of the plight you know manners uh, everything's under control social front the second is the kind of the anger and the hatred and the bitterness and, and the rage that's under that and almost like the plight and this is keeping a lid on that and a lot of people think that giving expression to this kind of hatred or rage or whatever is is a form of liberation, which you know we can see why people would say that. But where Reich, where Reich really 
comes into his own and shows to me his genius. He says, there's actually a third layer underneath that. And this hatred and anger emerges from the frustration of primary needs and it masks and protects us from our vulnerability and our gentleness. And so he says there's a real kind of, that our core is actually quite gentle Mm. and soft and vulnerable and the anger and everything else is a way of driving that away and a way of protecting that. And that's something, you know, I look at myself and I can see that quite clearly. I'm able to access anger fairly readily, but I'm not always able to be vulnerable and to be Mm. soft and gentle. And Mike said what he was trying to reach through his therapy was this kind of softness, you know. And he can, to sort of analogize a little bit, if you think about what you've seen of the bodily movement in Mike in therapy, when the physical therapy was fully developed, um, he began to refer to what he called the jellyfish movement, mm. which was someone moving kind of gently, pulsing in and out a bit like a jellyfish. And you've got to, this gentleness to sort of, and that's, if we think of what that might imply mentally, there's a kind of softness there mentally and there's a softness there physically. And that's kind of where he was trying to head towards. Mm, beautiful. I love that. There's a certain grace and, and flow yeah. that I envision. And it brings up this idea in Buddhism of basic goodness. I forget mm. the concept, but just yeah. that we're all have kind of this gentle soft nature on the inside and it's not that the world is evil and there's no hope but that that, that's kind of a layer that needs to be sorted out so that we can get to the beautiful and the soft and the gentle yeah there's there's a really lovely therapeutic anecdote in one of the um uh, books by a guy called morton herskovitz it's a book called emotional armoring which is a good book about reiki and uh, which is the best book about reiki and therapy Mm -hmm. uh, outside of reich and when he says, um, after something like, after three years of therapy, Michael smiled. Mm. And then he writes, he writes an anecdote about seeing a troop of baboons move down a tree when he was on safari in Kenya and seeing them move down a tree and sort of flow across the road. And he says, after he says, why did my mind go there? You know, because that was the movement of those, those baboons. That was free natural movement. This guy's smile was also free natural movement. Mm. So his mind, he drew an analogy between the two events, that kind of grace of nature world. And he saw it in this guy's smile. Mm. There's a certain authenticity, but it also is authenticity that is like unbridled or unbound. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Expression. Yeah, yeah, a a genuineness. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Coming from the source. Mm-hmm. Mm. All this is taking place in the backdrop of like moving over Europe, in a sense, to avoid fascism. You know, as a, as a Jewish psychoanalyst, he would have been on the Nazi hit list. So he he moved to Denmark, went to Norway in the sort of mid thirties, basically, before leaving for America uh, in nineteen thirty nine. Um, what he was doing at this time. He became interested in, well, he didn't become interested. He, he decided to start doing some experiments on what is life, you know, what is the basic building blocks of life. Can I look at the basic building blocks of biology 
protozoa or amoeba, and can they teach me anything about the life process? Critics of right would say, why is he doing this? Why is he moving wildly across disciplines? And hopefully so far, the, community, the conversation has shown why he would do that, what he was kind of doing. He was interested in sort of fundamentals about life. He was concerned with energy. He was concerned with movement. So he said, let's look at this in... Myron Sheriff uses the phrase, he drove life into a corner uh, and reduced it to reduce it to its lowest terms. So we were seeing if there was something fundamental going on. And he began to look at amoeba. Uh, he began to look at plant matter under a microscope. Uh, and he used quite unorthodox techniques at the time, which a lot of people didn't use. And he went up to a really, really high magnification, something like 3,000 times, you know, which wasn't, which isn't kind of accepted practice. And he felt what he saw in his observations of uh, decaying plant matter, he felt he saw small um, vesicles, he calls them, of moving matter. And he felt he saw these emerge from decaying matter. There's an anecdote. He asked a uh, lab assistant, where do amoeba come from? And this guy said, oh, they come from the air, of course. Mm. And he said there, there was a sort of thoughtlessness about the way that this guy said it. I kind of maybe think, oh, really? This guy's not thinking. This guy's giving me a rote answer. So he became interested in where life might come from. He felt it came, if it decaying matter under the right circumstances could give rise to other forms of life, you know, primitive forms of life. And he, he said he observed these small moving vessels, vesicles, and he said that some, sometimes they would clump together and they would begin to form amoeba and protozoa. Mm. And this is like... It's such a scientific heresy. I've talked to people about this before. I think people always get how much of a heresy this is because this is kind of saying that the idea of life emerging from a primordial soup through the combination of chemicals, you know, in time immemorial, at a time lost to us, this kind of life is this one-off event. It sort of says maybe that's not true. And maybe the origin of life is more immediate and maybe there's something else happening. So it's quite the scientific heresy, and, and it's got a history, actually. It's called spontaneous generation or vitalism. And there's a sort of, there's a whole branch of biology, pre-Reich, that he was drawing on for this. He didn't just come up with his ideas out, out of the blue. A lot of it's in German language, and I, I haven't read any of the original sources that he refers to. But he's not kind of pulling it out of the blue. If you, He called these things bions, by the way. And if you look at his book, The Bion Experiments, it has a fairly extensive bibliography. So he was picking up this kind of heretical scientific tradition, if you like, and um, looking at all these pulsing, moving, mobile forms under the microscope, basically. And this caused huge controversy in Norway at the time. Uh, and there was a... There was a press campaign against him. There was things in the press saying things like, um, God right creates life. Uh, he was attacked from all quarters. This book, actually, Jim Strike, uh, Wilhelm Reich, biologist, Reich closed his archives after his death. And um, he said, I didn't want anybody looking at my archives until 50 years after, I'm, after, after my passing. So they opened up again in 2008. 
and Jim Strix was one of the first people that got in there and kind of he's written a history of this period of Reich's work. Mm. This book is just about Reich's, pretty much just about Reich's time in Norway. Mm. And interestingly, at the end, it's got some people who replicate Reich's experiments. So it's got some people who've gone back, done the work, like he said, and they produce the same phenomena. So a lot of the attacks on Reich were people were saying, it's a result of shoddy lab technique. You don't know what you're looking at. You're a psychoanalyst. What do you know? A lot of those criticisms don't seem to stand up. Some of the people, interestingly enough, they say we don't agree with Reich's conclusions, but there's still a phenomenon. Mm. Yeah. If you observe decaying plant matter or whatever under these high magnifications, you do see these things. The interesting thing is, to add heresy to heresy, he tested um, non-organic substances, like iron filings and sand and all kinds of minerals. And he also felt that they produced these, these things, the bions. So if you're having them from mineral formations as well, you're, well, you're into some quite strange territory. And he referred to them as, um, he called them the bions, and he referred to them as the transitional forms between the living and the non-living. Yeah. And if I understood his major thesis, the idea was that life begets life. Is that yeah, fair? Pretty much, yeah. Because if, if these plant matter bions are, all, are becoming amoeba, and which I don't expect anybody to accept without blindly, because I say so. Right. And I've seen the experiments done. A friend, I've got one of my sort of colleagues has, has, has repeated a lot of the experiments. And I've seen his microscopy work and looks convincing to me, but I wouldn't expect anybody to take it as my word for it. I'd say read the books and try the experiments if it interests you. But if decaying plant matter is organising itself into other forms of life, yeah, it, it, you've got a situation where life is continuously begetting life. Mm-hmm. Life isn't a one-off primordial soup thing. Maybe there's something else happening. So, yeah, you know... This is where you can, this is like, you start going, okay, this is why this guy got into trouble. <laughs> yeah. It was, you mentioned that, that how he had his archives locked up for 50 years, and it's almost like he knew he was so far ahead of the curve that we should just kind of put this all away for 50 years and, and let yeah. the world catch up, and then we can take another look at it. Yeah. I wish I had... Uh, Paid more attention, but I saw uh, a news article come across my radar last week, I believe. There was a big scientific breakthrough being publicized around this very idea that life begets life. So here we are, years, decades later, catching up yeah. to what this man... Well, if you can find my article, please send it to me. I'd be fascinated to, yeah, to, I mean, to read it. One interesting thing that is probably worth mentioning is this is a, it's a fascinating story of scientific history. Jim's book, Jim Strick's book, is a it's a really serious, very dense work of academic scientific history. It's not a, a bedtime easy, easy read, but it it does do work justice, I think. Why it's interesting is because what's kind of one of the things that Jim Strick mentions is that biology, with the discovery of the DNA by Watson and Crick in I can't remember uh, when it was. For, off the top of my head, but the focus of biology moved on to DNA mm-hmm. and microbiology and using electron microscopes to look at very, very small samples and DNA. So this whole kind of branch that Reich was working in 
is kind of left behind. Mm. And one of the things that Jim Street says is that it's almost impossible for a contemporary biologist to understand what Wright was talking about because they're speaking such a different language now. Mm. Because if one person is looking at microbiology and DNA and things like that, Wright is looking at living tissue or very primitive forms under this huge magnification. And it's almost like there's a split between the two disciplines and they become very different. And, and Reich is on this kind of, um, almost like this evolutionary branch that's kind of died out. Right. Funnily right. enough, in terms of the analogy. He was very, the whole world was running down this DNA thing and he was, yeah. he seems like he had an extraordinary ability to zoom into the details and also zoom out and see the big picture yeah and to really synthesize and uh create from from those perspectives being able yeah. to hold both of those perspectives mm-hmm. yeah part of his genius yeah. yeah yeah i just thought it was worth kind of highlighting how, her- how heretical this stuff is you know i mean mm. i'm sure robert wilson fans are, are used to heresies but um with yeah it's um there was a huge campaign against him in the Norwegian press and I think that was one of the animating factors of him leaving mm-hmm. uh, Norway was probably to get away from that and he arrived in New York in um 1939 yeah gotcha. like thousands of other European immigrants mm. so so many of these things that we can intuitively understand maybe life begets life or that we can today in our modern age uh understand sexuality a lot more but when he was uh doing his thing he was he was blazing new ground in radical ways yeah and had the uh had the gatekeepers of established ideas beating down the doors with torches yeah. and pitchforks to yeah yeah it was, a, it was it was a real heated controversy in the press I think I think it went on for about eighteen months wow. um, and you know a lot of it was to do according to Jim Strick's historical research a lot of it was to do with um, research funding as well mm. and where the grants were going you know it's the the battleground of scientists. Yeah. Research yeah. funding. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So he ends up in New York, begins to build a sort of therapeutic practice for himself, while at the same time continuing his scientific work. I can't remember the chronology exactly. I can't remember when exactly it happens, but he had some bion cultures uh, made from sand. These forms of bions, he had some made from ocean sand. And basically, he had he began to notice a, a kind of radioactive effect, like a kind of uh, I think they were kept in a darkened room, and he noticed a luminescence that he couldn't mm. sort of get rid of. If I'm a memory serves correctly, he examined one of them under a microscope and gave himself a kind of conjunctivitis. Oh, it hurt his eye, so there's some kind of radiation phenomena going on. He begins to look closely at this and to try and isolate the uh, experiment, try and isolate the cultures and work out what's going on. And he can't seem to get rid of it, this radioactive effect. Eventually, he made a, he made a thing called a, a Faraday cage, which was to kind of try and isolate the effect, which, which I mean, this later became his organ accumulator. Um, there was a point about two years later than this, when he was in Maine, where he would eventually move to, 
and he found himself looking up in the sky and he felt he could see the same kind of patterns of energy in the sky that he saw in this darkened room. And he was like, ah, oh, the reason I haven't been able to isolate this energy is because um, it's everywhere. And maybe it's a sort of, it's a property, it's, it has a physical property and it's present in the atmosphere and our environment. And to cut a long story short, he named this energy organ mm. and that began to occupy the central role in his uh, physics and his physiology. He felt that the, as we sort of covered, he felt that the organism kind of pulsated, but he also felt what it was pulsating with was this energy that he called organ. Now, that's a lot to take on. I understand why people might go, all right, that's the bit where he went mad. I get that. I can sort of, I I can understand that. But then all I can offer against that is my experience when you sit in one of his devices, an organ accumulator, there is, to my mind, a real phenomenon. You know, there's something there you can feel. What is it? Maybe he wasn't mad after all. You know? What? shocked me just now actually is how he came to that i i kind of assumed orgone is sex energy and being sort of a, a sex-oriented therapist and and all those things he was coming to it through his work with people but he actually developed this idea through witnessing sand and and the sky yeah and uh, yeah it was um it it, it was uh for working with the bions and then uh, observing the atmosphere and the other thing that's sort of worth saying is, is it, it, this wasn't a sudden process. This was the process I've just described it took about two years before he made that leap. And he was shy about it. He wasn't sort of, mm. this is the truth straight away. This is the thing you'll never hear from his detractors. You'll never hear that there was a attentiveness about this. You'll always hear, oh, he was mad. Uh, he was this guy who saw this energy everywhere. You don't hear, well, he was quite uncertain about his observations and checked them out a lot and spent a lot of time observing before he publicised them. Mm. Um, so, I mean, one can go back and read the work. And to me, you know, it's well-reasoned, it's well-argued, it's articulate, it's exciting and groundbreaking, certainly if you buy into it. You know, I mean, I was reading this book this afternoon, uh, Ether God and the Devil sort of in preparation for the interview and it's a lovely well-organized well-ordered piece of philosoph- philosophical writing that takes these ideas seriously you know and what if there is an energy you know it, that's yeah that, that that's fascinating to me uh, for a number of reasons but his caution in introducing these mm-hmm. ideas most of what I've seen, my impression is a man that's very confident and bold in his proclamations. And uh, here he, you're, you're describing a man who's a little bit more like, uh, well, yeah, you know, I'm just yeah. following the science at this point. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. As you said, you know, how far down the rabbit hole can I go with? With Reich, and it's almost a general assumption that at some point he went crazy, and maybe kind of where do you draw the line for yourself? But the, on the other side of it is, it, it sounds like if you really start to follow the pattern and the thinking, that there's a real logic to it, and you you know, mm-hmm. kind of you're testing your own limits. Yeah, and it's completely true. Yeah, 
he writes somewhere. He has a too muchness to him. Mm. <laughs> it's a bit too much. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit like, pff, it is a bit much, you know? Mm. But there's a self-awareness there that's key. Yeah. When you think about kind of this fine line between genius and insanity and, and mm. some of the, the these groundbreaking folks that, that are really just so far ahead of their time. And, and yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's kind of easier to digest if he was mad. I mean, it's easier for a mad guy. There's nothing to worry about here. But, you know, I don't think he was mad. So I think he's, he remains hard to digest for me because of that complexity, you know. But the thing is, it's, it's like for Bion work, lots of people, well, not lots, but a number of people have replicated his experiments, you know. It's, right. There's a phenomenon there that happens. Um, it's not the result of equipment that wasn't sterile or shoddy lab technique. There is a phenomenon there. It's the same with the organ accumulator. You sit in one, you're all oh, right. I can feel something. What's that? There's something there, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Right. We, we can't really measure it and quantify it yet. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for us to wrap our heads around it. But yeah, something's, there's some phenomenon going on. Yeah. And this is where we're in the 40s now. And he began to, he mostly worked with organ energy for the rest of his career. And there's a sense of being, well, no, actually, it's not true. Actually, he didn't mostly work with organ energy. He was very engaged in psychiatric work, very engaged with his private practice. And But there's a sense of wanting to make a contribution to physics because it would be more enduring, I think, rather than wanting to just continually work with ill people making them, you know, making them better. It is a sense of like, where am I going to achieve the most? You know, okay. um, you know, looking at prevention rather than cure. And the prevention thing came out in the, um, I think it was 51, the organ research into child rearing. I can't remember the exact name of it. It was um, organ research, infant. Oh God, I can't remember. But yeah, they had a clinic where some newborns and some mothers were sharing observations with some therapeutically trained staff and they were attempting to gather information on what might cause armoring, really, and what might constrain good parenting and what might might cause the initial kind of tensing up and disruption to patterns that um, becomes armoring. Mm -hmm. How do we raise healthy children with less armoring? Yeah, and one of the things Wyatt talks about, I think this is in Children of the Future, is um, is there was a a young mother there who spoke quite freely about her sexual relationships outside of wedlock. And he noticed that even in a room full of people that he'd kind of trained, there was a kind of frostiness came over the room when she began to talk talk like this. Mm. And he was like, well, he sort of wondered, can my work really go anywhere? when even with people who are sympathetic to my ideas, there's a degree of anti-sexual feeling that comes up in them. And one of the interesting things about Reich is, is of course, that for him this is embodied. So he writes about people's sexual fear would often be anchored in their bodies, around their hips, around their genitals. And um, sometimes when people start to discuss sexual matters, people tense up in these areas and they sort of tense up and they pull back. And they begin to experience the fear that 
all of us in Western culture have got to some degree or another around sex and sexuality. You know, or not a fear, maybe fear is too strong a word, but a slight disease. So he felt that the work of this organ research clinic, he felt this, this is going to be difficult work. Mm. And they didn't really get to complete that work because the last couple of years of his life were occupied with legal right. uh, problems. Again, I'm struck with this self-awareness that he's like, maybe the world isn't ready for these ideas, which, which to me shows me he's not crazy. To have that realization and that perspective is not the talk of a madman. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of that in his, in his writing. He's, he knows that he won't be accepted and it's hundreds of years in the future. And there's still this, I mean, you look at his biography, there's moments when he's really seeking official approval or institutional approval, while at the same time being aware that his work is not going to be accepted. A.S. Neil who's an educator in England, said, uh, Reich is for tomorrow, not for today. Mm. Which is, you know, quite a sad statement, really. You know? Just that dichotomy of being, you know, he's still human and being human and having that need to be accepted by his peers or the community or, or scientific establishment. And yet having such brilliant ideas and knowing that he needs to push forward and, and, and mm. continue on. Yeah, yeah, that's for, that's for tension in his in his work. Yeah, there's a book of letters he he wrote to this educator in England who ran a, a school called Summerhill. Um, As Neil, Neil was one of the few people who talked to him as an equal, because lots of people looked up to Reich and put him on the pedestal. And Neil and maybe his wife were the few people who talked to him like a human being. Some of those letters do show the kind of pain of being far out in front and misunderstood. That kind of that, that sense of um, the importance of your ideas, but also a sense of isolation, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, a fascinating quote by Young, and I don't remember it in exactly, but something about loneliness is not about having people in your life. It's about not being able to communicate your ideas and be fully understood. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Yet one thing is him as a, as a historical personage because people who know about him, there's been, I don't want to say there's been a sustained campaign against him, but people have been saying, this guy's mad for 50 years now. And that's hard to undo. You know, you can't repeal that, you can't just peel that back. The FDA in America, they have taken down the organ accumulator as a false medical device. That, that's one of their, that's an achievement they're proud of. I mean, mm. you know, may, maybe less so now because it's so long ago, but certainly in the um, 60s and 70s and 80s, that, that would be a, a thing that they said, yeah, we, we took down this, this, this lunatic, this faulty medical device. So Reich's history itself gets in the way because it's so hard to turn back that tide. I also think that probably the ways in which we do science are obstructive to that because, for instance, looking at living things under unusual levels of magnification isn't something that we do, whereas using thousands and thousands of pounds of technology to build, I don't know, you know, massively complex electron microscopes and having technological solutions is something we do, you know. There's a very everyday observation of life 
I mean, you know, if, if I would say if you want to see Warwick's ideas in practice, go and look at a newborn baby. You know, look at how that baby moves. That's that baby is pulsating, you know. But that kind of thing, even as I say it, I'm conscious that sounds kind of quite naive compared to the whiz bang of solving things via expensive technological solutions. It's a great question. You know, you see somebody that's so ahead of their time and you just want everybody to catch on to this and, and, and get with the program. And I don't know, it, it just doesn't work that way in some regards. And it, I mean, as we've been talking, I'm seeing how so much of his ideas have kind of slowly permeated into the culture and continue to do so. And I, uh, I'm asking myself now, if we look at our, our political economic situation and the mass psychology of fascism, how can we apply that so things go differently? And I, hmm, I'll have to chew on that one for a while. But life seems yeah. to, to move forward and evolve in its own quirky ways. Yeah. One thing I, I would say is a real positive is the way that, well, particularly in the last few years, is the way that embodiment and embodied practice have entered into psychotherapy and are, and are now so important. In the email to me, you mentioned um, Bessel van der Kolk's book, mm-hmm. Body Knows the Score. And the way that book has been picked up and read, it's like it's, it's a bit like a thirsty man in the desert. People, if you practice psychotherapy, you know that the body's important and that embodied experience is vital. And van der Kolk sort of speaks to that need. So that that's, that's something I am... I do think is a real positive development because that's only going to increase, I think, as yeah. far as, uh, yeah. I mean, I haven't kept up with it, but I know like the, the cognitive behavioral stream of, of therapy began to introduce, you know, mindfulness and, mm-hmm. and with DBT and, and uh, brought more and more mindfulness in. And I haven't been keeping up with it, but I know they were starting to bring the body in. Yeah, and that cognitive behavioral school is like the you know mainstream accepted evidence based realm, and so to see that they're bringing the body in to the mainstream, yeah, that's good to yeah. I still found on my own training where a lot of people had no idea what I was talking about mm. when I would start talking about the body, didn't quite get it, and I mean it was quite an orthodox training, I guess. So no reason that they should, but the therapy there was largely verbal sure. you know and i mean i guess you could say that embodies one of the splits in our culture you know the way that we have that kind of heady heady cerebral orientation and also there's the idea that that's where it's safe mm. my course convener had done some body work and i think she knew how impactful it could be she knew how powerful it could be and she was like she <laughs> she would look at me funny she knew more than anyone else what I was kind of interested in because she'd had some bodywork experience. So she'd be like, I'm going to keep an eye on this guy because yeah. this, this stuff is powerful, you know? And it can sneak up on you. So. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we've covered quite a bit. Do we need to wrap up the biography? Um, yeah. I'll, I'll try and wrap that up um, quickly. Yeah. With um, yet another heresy. So I was using the organ accumulator medically um, and people will talk about it. Um, oh, yeah, you know, he was a, a quack and he sold this false medical device and um, it's this sex box, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and it can, mm. you know, give you orgasms and all of that. And it's like, that's complete bollocks. None of that was ever true. None of those claims 
wherever communist from he didn't talk about increasing sexual potency or anything like that at all. He didn't talk about it as a cure for cancer, which is what you'll get some people say. If you run into the full details, it'd be a long and convoluted story. But basically, um, you can find most of this in a book called Wilhelm Reich and the Cold War by a guy called Jim Martin. One of Reich's allegations was that um, communists were plotting against him. And that sounds like quite a paranoid thing. And people have used that as evidence of paranoia in his later years. However, the article that triggered the legal case against him was written by a woman called Mildred Eddie Brady, and it was published in New Republic in the late 40s, I think. And that eventually began to trick, that eventually triggered the Food and Drug Administration against him. And Mildred Eddie Brady was known to Reich. I think he'd met her in the 30s, and she was actually a card-carrying communist. And she, in fact, lost, before all the stuff with Reich, she'd lost her job due to the McCarthy hearings. So she was actually, and her husband was also a com, in the, com, you know, I can't remember if they were official party members or not, but they were certainly of communism and political operators who were supporting communism. Wright could criticise Stalin, you know, long, long before it was fashionable, I think, because he could see what the emotional dynamics behind a lot of that were. He referred to red fascism in a number of his, his books. So, the um, American communists saw him as an enemy. This legal campaign against him, it focused on the organ accumulator and making fraudulent medical claims. And Reich, he refused to appear in court, which was pretty dumb. Courts tend to take a dim view of that, but his reasons for doing so were quite philosophically sound. He said, you can't legislate on a scientific principle. A court can't say all going doesn't exist, but it's not up for a court to say. So he refused to appear in court. There was an injunction against him and getting the chronology a bit mixed up here. One of his associates moved an organ accumulator across state lines where it becomes a federal offence. He breached the injunction, he refused to appear in court and he was sent to prison in 1957. Or maybe he was sent to prison in 56, but he died in 57 after nine months in prison heartbroken really mm. you know if you think about this idea of movement and pulsation and this stuff we're talking about and you think of prison as the ultimate mm. kind of constraining environment yeah and his heart gave out after nine months in prison and he yeah he died in 57 still quite young yeah yeah he was only 60 yeah and he would have had yeah, like I say, he would have had that chance for a retrospective moment, I think, if he'd lived longer. Right. Who knows what, what might have happened if he'd lived another 10 years without that legal pressure, you know? It's, yeah, right. There's, there's a lot of productive years ahead of him, yet he seemed to make a conscious choice in a way, almost to martyr himself. I mean, I, I, I get his philosophical stand, but and the the harsh reality of life is that you're you're kind of condemning yourself to to prison yeah. if you take that stand and yeah what, um, what struck me as you were talking is is uh how his father sort of uh slowly killed himself mm-hmm. is almost a similar thing by by sentencing himself to prison in a way yeah yeah reading the biographical accounts at the time they were all shocked everybody was shocked by the custodial sentence. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very sad. 
the martyr thing is definitely there with him. But he wrote a, a really interesting book called The Murder of Christ. That is about the way that, well, we talked earlier about life begetting life. This is about how armoured life in Mike's parlance uh, murders life. Mm. On one level, it's about how we will destroy what is free, spontaneous, living and moving. We'll kind of destroy it and constrain it. That's kind of one of the themes. And he says, he's sort of talking about Christ as the, the free movement urge, the kind of mm. pulsation. And we'll try an armour against it and kill it. And there's definitely a bit of a Christ identification thing going on there, as well as other scientific martyrs, you know, like Giordano Bruno and people like that. He's, there's definitely... People like that refer to, and you can tell he's he's speaking of himself. But it's still quite. It's, it's an arresting book. It's quite a powerful book, and an, an extraordinary man, and and a, a very human man. Yeah, you have to yeah. embrace the genius and embrace the humanity. Yeah, yeah, very much. Well, Reich said. Actually, Mike asked uh, one of the questions Mike sent me was what would, what would Reich's philosophy be? And I was thinking about it, I said, I don't really know if I would say he, it was a philosophy as such. He was someone who looked at life and found certain things he thought were true about life. And that was the, mm. and centered his philosophy as, as such on those. And one of those was pulsation. And he actually says somewhere, I've only really discovered one thing, and it's that life moves and life pulsates. And this is like Columbus discovering America and everybody else can fill in the details. But this is the coastal shore. But I've discovered it's red thread that unifies my work. Hmm. And what he's talking about is life kind of contracting and expanding, moving in and moving out. And you can see that in the breath. You can see that in the beating of the heart. Um, you can see that in the movement of all of our, all of our organs. And you can see it in the therapeutic process. You can see there will be moments when people contract, and there will be moments when people expand. Expansion is parasympathetic expansion. Contraction is contraction of the sympathetic nervous system. But Wright felt it was more fundamental than that. He felt it was an energetic process also going on. And this is why he was so interested in sort of cells and amoeba, because they were the purest form of pulsation that you can see. That's why originally he started looking at, at cells. And you can draw this out into looking at lots of phenomena. And one of the things where I looked at it to take it back to sex is in orgasm. He had a thing called the orgasm formula, which was a a four-beat formula. If I can remember it, which I should be able to remember it, is mechanical charge, biophysical charge, biophysical discharge, and mechanical relaxation. So he said orgasm is fundamentally a... um, pulsatory process and that's why you know one of his most important books is the function of the orgasm also where this gets really interesting i think is when you start to look at other life processes and to see if there's pulsation there or not if you think about birth for instance birth is obviously a process where there's pulsation and my colleague peter who i mentioned to you earlier he actually he ended up training to be a midwife after being a therapist and ended up applying kind of Reichian breathwork techniques in the, uh, the midwifery clinic, getting people to breathe. He said that was the sort of the, the kind of fundamental about life. So, Dan, uh, thanks for your time today. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. 
there's any resources or if you want to promote what you've got going on? Well, if people want to get hold of me, they can get hold of me on Twitter. Um, I'm I I kind of have a love hate relationship with the medium, so I don't post very much. But I've got a Twitter account as all going one, and I may on. post more stuff on there. Um, I'm starting a therapeutic practice. I haven't got the website up yet, but as soon as I do, I will let, let you know, know. whether yeah. it is if people want to get in touch with me. If people want to email me about any of this stuff, just please get in touch through Twitter. There's a couple of excellent books published by a colleague that I can recommend if anyone wants to take this further. There's a massive book called Expansion and Contraction, which is about 500 plus pages of writing, a collection of writing writings, but I'll send you a link to it so we can Excellent. pop it in any show notes or, or similar. Yeah. Um, Pulsation, expansion, yeah. attraction. That's, that's yeah. the theme for the day. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Dan, for your time. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for your interest. Cheers, then, guys. All right. As I reflect back on this interview, I'm left with the impression of a man, a man ahead of his time, a man of many ideas. But as Dan points out, it, it all boils down to pulsation as the fundamental action of life. And just off the top, I find pulsation interesting because it's dynamic, it's non-linear. I think of something simple like a heartbeat or the inhale and exhale. I think of the ebb and flow of the tides and the cycles of the day and night and uh, the moon and the seasons and the rhythms of life and the universe, just as above, so below, as they say. And it seemed like Reich studied this fundamental action of life all the way down to the cellular level and all the way out into the clouds, which, uh, speaking of, we didn't even get to uh, cloud busting and UFOs, which were some of the more seemingly out there of Reich's ideas that he explored at the end of his life, which brings up another interesting point that, that Dan has broached, which is where do you draw the line with, with Wilhelm Reich? Um, most everybody that studied him at least a little bit, there's a general assumption that he went crazy at some point. And uh, maybe part of that question is, when did he go crazy for you? When did Reich cross the line from genius to insanity? Uh, but how far am I willing to go down the rabbit hole with Wilhelm Reich? And what does this say about me? Certainly, uh, for me personally, I get a little wrapped up around the curious circumstances of his imprisonment and death. And honestly, I don't know enough about that to really have an opinion on it, but it certainly catches my attention. In the meantime, he lived big in his brief 60 years here on the planet. And speaking of living big, I'm going to go ahead and suggest that every one of you go out and read Listen, Little Man. It's a short book. You don't have to read all of it. Just read it until you get the message. Go as far as you need to go until you really get the message. Uh, for me, it's, well, first of all, it's, it's, it was meant to be unpublished. He, he never wrote it. He just wrote this rant. And uh, you can read the story in, in the show notes. We'll link to the, the book, the copy that has the story behind it. There's several copies on the internet, but he never meant for it to be published and just kind of went on this rant. And for me, it's, it's a call to personal responsibility and self-empowerment. 
that, uh, well, frankly, we need it now more than ever. And I'll just leave it at that. It's the kind of book you could pick up and read once every three months and just put it down once you got the message, the reminder. Beyond that, I think Wilson related to Reich. I think here are, are two men that were ahead of their time, largely misunderstood, their ideas not recognized at best, persecuted for their ideas, particularly Wilhelm Reich, persecuted by the government at the worst of times. And I think Wilson had a lot of respect for a man who was willing to put his freedom and ultimately his life on the line for his convictions. Again, going back to this Fourth Circuit persecution of Third Circuit mavericks. Uh, but I believe Wilson loved him for this. Wilson stood uncompromisingly for his ideas that he believed in. And he felt misunderstood and unappreciated by most. And I think that's a lonely place. And, um, yeah, I just feel like he had a lot of resonance with the struggles and of Wilhelm Reich and the conviction. I see Reich as the godfather of somatic psychotherapy. I believe that's his enduring legacy. I think that's an exploding field, uh, particularly in the area of trauma. I don't know enough about Reich to really talk about this. I don't think he ever spoke directly of the mind-body connection, but it certainly is implied in his work. And that's just a growing given that there is a mind-body connection and that uh, emotions, for example, originate in the body. Those ideas are rapidly picking up acceptance in the psychotherapy field. I trace that all back to, to Reich. And, and as that said, I, wanna, I wanted to, uh, as part of this podcast, talk a little about, I, I always hear a lot of people that are interested in pursuing Reichian therapy as a result of reading Wilson. And I guess the major issue I have with that is it's just really hard to find a Reichian therapist. But it was hard back then. It's hard today. So I wanted to do a little piece on going into therapy and Reichian therapy or just seeking psychotherapy. And quickly became too big for the podcast. So we're, I'm going to put that on my own website. We'll link to that in the show notes for people that are interested. I'm going to talk about do-it-yourself do Reichian therapy and the resources that are out there, uh, modern body therapies, and modern body-based psychotherapy, as well as psychotherapy in general. And uh, we'll put a link there in the show notes. Yeah. That concludes our episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to visit Hilaritas Press and buy all the books. And if you haven't already, check out the recently rediscovered, previously unpublished book, The Starseed Signals. You can also find our podcast at hilaritaspress.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Big thank you to Christina Pearson and Richard Ross of Hilaritas Press. And thanks to Mark Pilkington of Strange Attractor Press for introducing us to Dan Lowe. And a big thank you to Dan for taking the time to talk to us. You can find Dan on Twitter at Orgone1. Thank you to our audio engineer, Ryan Reeves, for technical production and music. Episode 3 on the Doors of Perception and Aldous Huxley with biographer Nicholas Murray will be available on the 23rd of November. I am your host, Mike Gathers, and until next time, Amor et Hilaritas.
all patriarchal authoritarian societies, when they're under threat, they turn fascist. Thank you.